I am turning this morning to the 16th chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, and we'll be looking at verses 18 and through 20. Matthew 16, verses 18 through 20, and I want to read these three verses as we begin this morning. Beginning there in the 18th verse, and I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. I want to draw your attention back to verse 18, and our subject is taken from that verse. I will build my church. I will build my church. It is one of the declarations that our Lord makes upon the coming of Calvary. The shadows of Calvary are beginning to gather. The Lord is continuing to desire to prepare His disciples not only for what his mission was, but to prepare them for what they were going to carry on and for what they were to stand for. His questions that he had spoken to Peter about, we looked at last week and the previous week, ended with a magnificent confession. Not that Peter was more eloquent in the way he confessed it, but in the fact that in verse 16, Peter makes the confession of all confessions regarding Jesus Christ and his person, his nature, who he was. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we looked at how important that confession was. We saw in verse 17 how Peter had not arrived at that conclusion on his own understanding, it had not arrived on his own intellect. But Jesus tells him, Peter, you understand these and you've confessed this because my Father in heaven has revealed it unto you. This great confession of faith of Peter was more than a doctrinal statement. It was more than a, uh, articles of faith that we see on uh, church documents and in church websites. But rather, Peter was declaring that he had a knowledge of Christ as something more than just a person, more than just a man. But he had a knowledge of Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Our Lord's words to Peter that we're reading today are directly related to what Peter confessed to be so. To take these verses as standalone verses and to take them out of context, we could certainly derive, we could arrive at a doctrine that would certainly be faulty at best. I'd say that very light, well, very loosely, uh, but would most likely be a crumbling foundation that would have no strength to stand. But you'll notice those words. The Lord very directly, and before we allow anything to enter into our mind to distract us, I will build my church. It's very important that we emphasize where Christ places the emphasis in his declaration. I and my. I will build my church. It will be of my doing, and it'll be of my design. It'll be with my preeminence 
at the very pinnacle of it. He never one time tells Peter that, Peter, I'm going to build my church based upon your merits or based upon your righteousness, but rather what we'll see is that he is reminding Peter and instructing Peter that based upon his confession that Jesus is the Christ, that is the very foundation of which the church will be built upon, not upon the foundation of Peter. To build your foundation of the church on Peter and his righteousness would be to not only build on a faulty foundation, but a foundation that will fail and will crumble no matter which way you look at it. But what does Jesus mean by building the church? We think about building and we think about materials. Our minds immediately go to a construction site. They go to a place where we think about, what do I do to build the building? Well, I I prepare beforehand. I acquire the materials that are already to be brought to that place of building. Well, make no mistake about it, the church and what Jesus was speaking about here had been being prepared for centuries. But he clearly declares that the building of it is my doing. And I think we could all agree this morning that he says this is my church and it's my doing. He is the author. He is the architect, if you will. He is the one who has designed the church. Throughout the centuries, the church has been being built. If we're in his church today, if we're part of the body of believers, we are there because we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We, in fact, it has been revealed to us as it was to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We did not arrive at that just by our own intelligence It was revealed unto us. We occupy a position in the church. It ought to be a precious thing to be part of his church. It ought to be a precious thing to consider even today that if you are a believer, that you are in the presence of his church. And that we gather at various times throughout a week, various times throughout a year, But certainly every Lord's Day, we gather as the church. We gather on Wednesdays as the church. We gather not just for a social gathering. We gather because it is the church in which Jesus Christ is the author, the architect, and the finisher of that we are gathered unto. The foundation of the church is not on the shoulders of Peter. The foundation of the church are on the shoulders of the person that Peter confessed. The foundation of the church is on Christ. It is the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. We know throughout Scripture, Jesus' own words, and we see here in just a moment as we read, Jesus promises that not only will he build the church, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't know if you've thought about this today, but the church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. It is not presently being destroyed. Certainly, we are living in dark days. But Christ made a promise that the church that he builds that's based upon the foundation of his sonship can never be destroyed. So we are proclaiming an indestructible message every time we give the gospel because the gospel is based upon the foundation 
of Jesus Christ's divine sonship. Every, nearly every message in the world that goes out each and every day is a fallible message. Even though the facts may be true, the message is destructible. But the message of Jesus Christ and his church and the very church itself will never be destroyed. Again, sadly, sometimes, and even in a church our size, some people have been brought up, and again, it's never intended to draw some kind of shame. That's not what I'm in my intent at all, but sometimes people have been taught that uh, the church is the place we go or the, the building that we gather in, and that's not the church. This structure is a meeting house. Now, we can refer to this room as a lot of different things. We could call it a sanctuary. We could call it a chapel. We could call it an auditorium. But the church are the believers that are seated here today. So when I look into your face and you look into my face, we are looking into the church of Jesus Christ. We are looking into the body of believers that are confessing, as Peter confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The gates of hell shall not prevail. What does that mean? Well, that means that Jesus Christ, He who built this church, will also defend it. Some of those psalms we read today are psalms that are imprecatory psalms. They're psalms that read as if we're calling for the enemies of God to be destroyed. They've always tried to find a place. How do those psalms, especially of David, praying against the enemies and to strike down nations that are against you? They're those psalms that are difficult to say. Do we pray those today or is that unkind? Well, you realize that Jesus Christ is very clearly detailing that anything that is of the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That which seeks to destroy it, to undermine it, to rip out its foundation, it will not prevail. I think it would be honestly, if we asked ask you this question this morning, would we, we be okay with any of Christ's foundation being undermined or even cracked? I wouldn't be okay with that. How much evil would we say is okay to allow to prevail against the church? How much is okay? Well, I'll take what Jesus says. Nothing shall prevail. Nothing shall prevail against his church. The gates of hell. The gates of hell is not just a reference to the literal place of hell and fire and brimstone. The gates of hell is also a reference to the unseen world. It includes all the principalities and the powers that are right now presently allied against Christ and his church with the desire of destroying the church. They are not concerned about destroying this building in which you and I are seated in this morning. Their desire, the principalities and powers of the air are desiring to destroy you. They're destroying, desiring to destroy Christ. But yet he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They are allied against God's people. I know we live in a day and age where we don't want to think about the warfare that's going on and we think about what we can see. And I want you to understand and hear me very clearly. 
you see the outward, you and I see the outward manifestation of the attacks against the church. We see what's being done outwardly. But can I just tell you this morning, what's going on in the unseen world is much more vicious and much more allied than what the outside influences we see. If we could get just a glimpse into the demonic evil world that is, that is standing up and trying to destroy the church of Christ, Folks, we would be frightened if we did not have hope in Jesus Christ. Because it's far worse than what you see. But here's the hope today. Christ has already said, no matter what comes against my church, it will not be destroyed. We are not going to wake up one day in this world and find that the church has been destroyed. Now, we may come to this building one day and this building might be gone. But the church will still remain. You see, even Paul, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 6 verse 12, he reminded the church there, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Even that spiritual wickedness in high places will not prevail against the church. So we have a great promise. Oftentimes when a sermon is being preached, there is this dramatic buildup. Here's all the bad news and here's all the things that we need to get right. And we get to the end and say, here's your hope. Well, this is kind of reversed. I'm giving you hope before we go another step further that the wickedness of this world will not prevail against the church. So that whatever you see, whatever you hear, the church is not at any threat of being destroyed. That's a glorious truth. Because I don't have to fear what cannot happen. And if it cannot happen, then I need not fear. But I also do clearly need to understand how that foundation is built, why it's built, and why I can find complete rest and hope in it. Now you'll notice as we expound these verses a little bit more deeply. Verse 18, Jesus as he's speaking to Peter, again based upon last week when we looked at Peter confessing thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and how Jesus responded to him saying, blessed are you, says flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but my Father which is in heaven. So this is the continuation of that same conversation. There is not a break. This isn't a, a, a day, 24 hours. This is a continuous conversation. And he, it says Jesus is adding to what he's already said based upon what's been spoken. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Now, let's take these phrases apart. Thou art Peter. Let's just stop there. And what is Jesus declaring here? What is he speaking about Peter? Peter, of course, is the name Petra. That's the, what the original language is. And it is simply defined as a piece of rock or a stone. And what Jesus is very clearly saying when he tells him, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock... He's declaring to Peter that, Peter, you are a piece of the rock or the stone of the greater stone. Jesus Christ declares himself to be the chief cornerstone. He's not telling Peter in any way, shape, or form that you are the cornerstone of the church. 
He's not even hinting that Peter is part of the cornerstone. He's saying you are a piece of it. You are a stone within the foundation, but you are not the strength. You are not in which the foundation is clearly built upon. Peter, of course, by the revelation of the Father, came to know the Son of the living God. He came to identify himself with Christ. So we could accurately say that Peter was a stone of the one rock. Jesus Christ. Christ is the rock. Peter had become one with Christ. So when Jesus says, upon this rock, he is not pointing to Peter and saying, Peter, upon you the rock, I will build my church. He's in no way, shape, or form saying you are going to be the foundation. Now he's got an interesting message for Peter because he is going to tell Peter, but you are going to have a part in carrying out the work and the ministry of the church. But we've got to very clearly understand Peter is not the cornerstone. He is a piece of stone. Christ is the rock. If there had been, and again, to speak truth sometimes means you speak difficult things for some to hear. If there had been no Roman Catholic to twist this passage, there would be no confusion to this text at all. And to think that you have not been persuaded and twisted somewhere along the line by that pervasive teaching about Peter would be foolish because it has been pervasive for centuries. This is not a new doctrine that the Pope and the Catholic Church and that Peter all is really the foundation of it all. This is not a new teaching. Yet there are still many who sit in churches like ours who struggle with this passage. And they say, well, I've always heard this. Just because you've always heard something doesn't mean you've heard it right or been taught right. Peter is not the rock. This passage, really, if you read it as it is, it really presents no difficulty. Christ is not only the builder. He is the author. He's the architect. The architect. Now, what he is going to show us by teaching Peter is that he and the apostles, they are the stones in especially the very foundations of the beginning of the church. But we also know that it's not based upon the strength of Peter, and it's not, the church is not based upon the strength of the Pope, and it's not based upon the strength of the Catholic Church. We're told in Revelation 21, 14, about the 12 foundations. And the 12 foundations that are mentioned are the names of the 12 apostles. But Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In other words, yes, the apostles are mentioned. But the apostles are carrying out the doctrine in which the chief cornerstone establishes. In other words, these apostles would not bring their own message. They would simply be the purveyors and the preachers and proclaimers of the message of the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you may hear somebody say that we are of an apostolic succession. 
What that means is we're not saying that we are directly from Peter, John. It is about their doctrine. In other words, the doctrine that our church preaches is biblical doctrine. It's the same doctrine that the Apostle Paul preached. It's the same doctrine Peter preached. In other words, if we were to live in that day and we could compare what they were preaching and what we're preaching, it should be the same. Jesus Christ is the builder. The gospel has always been the gospel. It's always been through Jesus Christ alone. It's never been any other way. Well, you'd run into one problem if you thought it was on the Catholic Church because that's not the way the Catholic Church believes or teaches. They do not teach that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. They believe that it is proper and appropriate to pray to Mary. We would call that blasphemy. We would call that heresy. We would say there is nothing to pray to Mary or to worship her. But what we do understand is that the apostles' doctrine, we rest upon their testimony concerning Jesus Christ and His resurrection. So when we read the Gospels and we read the letters of Paul, we stand and we preach and we declare, and I would go one step further, we defend the same doctrine. It's not a new doctrine for the new church. Jesus says that this church... He gathers. He builds it. I will build my church. He builds on a firm foundation. Upon this rock, upon me, I will build this church. What Jesus builds is His own. It is my church. It is a stronghold. It is a a foundation that the powers of evil, no matter how evil they get, even though we're under a continual attack, You don't even realize this morning, or maybe you do, that the church every moment of every day is under an attack. It is is relentless. It doesn't stop. For those who are truly in Christ and part of His church to say, well, I'm glad the enemy backed off a little bit. The powers and principalities of darkness are relentless in their attack, but they cannot destroy the church in which Christ builds. That means every time you proclaim the gospel, you are proclaiming and declaring and defending a doctrine and a truth that has always been true and will always be true. You see what a travesty it is to try to change the doctrine to meet society? You see what a travesty it is that when we look out and we see an audience and we say, well, these people are from a particular pervasive sin, so I'm going to change the message to reach them. It's the same message. The same gospel, no matter what your sin is. Jesus Christ and His church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Every power of evil that is attempting to bring down the church is acting in vain, but that doesn't mean that they're not attacking. The church here, of course, talks about the whole body of believers. Now, we, we give visible picture of the church by the local church. Not every believer is in this church. There are believers all over this town. There are believers all over this state. There's believers all over this country. I believe that there are more believers in this world than we're even giving God credit for. 
Because sometimes we preach this gospel that makes it sound like there's just a few of us. I think we are going to be, again, I can't point to you scripture and say this is what's guaranteed, but I think we are going to be shocked by how many of God's elect there actually are. And again, none of them are there because of their own worthiness or their own righteousness. They're all there based on the merits and righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's building his church. It also tells us that the building isn't stopping. Some would have us believe that we should just give up and just kind of wait for the Lord to return because nothing's working. Know what this ought to be doing by what you've already heard this morning ought to make us more diligent to go out and say, listen, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against Jesus Christ and his church or the gospel. He's going to keep building. Every time we see a person converted and come to Christ, that is Jesus Christ building his church. And he continues to save souls. He continues to add them to his church. Christ calls it his church, not Peter's. He says, I will build, not you shall build. The working of faith in the souls of men is the work of God. No doubt God gives us ministers who preach the word. And there have been certainly much, many, many, many more faithful men than I who have stood and proclaimed this gospel. And yet God uses the weak things of this world like preachers and ministers to add to his church. That's why every time you see a soul come to Christ, we should be humbled to the dust over that and thank God that he's still building. Thank God that he's still adding, even when our weaknesses, God's word is not being hindered. The very plain sense of this is that our Lord builds the church upon the proposition or the truth in which he declares it to be. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now what he's announcing to Peter is that Peter is going to be an instrument who will be used in the converting of men to this faith. Some of you may be familiar with a very, very bad doctrine of hyper-Calvinism, which hyper-Calvinism basically says that there's nothing that we're supposed to do, there's no evangelism, there's no preaching, there's nothing we can do because it's already predetermined. That's not the message that Jesus Christ is teaching, and that's not the position that our church takes. We see from Scripture that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, that we have an obligation to preach And that God uses the weak things of this world to bring people unto himself. That's why it's a great privilege for us to preach the gospel. Men in this church, if you're ever asked to preach and you're ever asked to teach, you're ever asked to stand and proclaim, let it be a fearful thing to you. Don't ever take this as being some kind of time you just get to have a talk with people. You are declaring eternal truth. This is not a motivational speech today. This is not meant to tickle our ears. This is not meant to make us feel warm and fuzzy. It's to make us rejoice and bow down to the Savior of the world who's building His church, and for some reason, we're a part of it. And if you're a part of the family of God, if you're a part of His church, you are a part of the greatest family you can ever be a part of. Peter would be an instrument. No doubt, Peter is a reminder to all of us that even though Peter was an imperfect instrument, 
God used him to add thousands of people to the church. Peter preached at Pentecost and thousands of people were added unto the church. Faith obtained by those who heard the word of God. And at the same time, these instruments, these men, these ministers who are preaching, at the same time, there is the wickedness of the world who is doing all it can to try to prevent God's message from being heard. You realize that all that God intends to save will be saved. Not a single one will be lost. In other words, the devil's not going to get the victory. Just as God has instruments he's using, Satan does as well. And I would tell you that in the seen world, that things which we can see, we often think of this person dressed in all dark clothes, sneaking around in alleyways. And we think this is the way that Satan uses his instruments. And I would say that may be the case. But do you know where the greatest instruments of Satan are actually appearing? Standing behind pulpits like this one. Standing behind, in front of people who are claiming to be angels of light, but are really angels of Satan himself. Why do you think God takes it so seriously that those you put in front of the people of my church, that they better be true believers? And they're not supposed to be novices. They're not supposed to be new converts. They're supposed to be people who have been vetted, people who have been proven that they are proclaiming truth. And the word is so clear that if they are not that, remove them from your presence. You have an obligation as a member of this church that if you hear false doctrine come out of these lips, with an attempt to persuade you to follow, you have an obligation to throw me out. Say, but he's been here so long. We like him. Not if I'm proclaiming false doctrine. Far too long we've said, listen, that's a good preacher there. He's done this, he's done this, and he's done this. But at some point he started preaching false doctrine and you allowed it to stay. You can't do that. You see, the reality is, is men are fallible. Peter was fallible. You do not want your foundation built upon the fallibility and the sin of man. Peter was a sinner. Now be careful that you don't throw old Peter under the bus too often because you're not any better. You're just as bold. You're just as I will this, I will this. And we often look at Peter and we say, well, Peter just meant he always was getting ahead of himself. So are we. We always think we wouldn't have done that. But I want you to think about that there is this relentless attack on the church and the devil has his instruments. Their desire is the total extermination of the church. They want no trace of it left. Again, you have your head in a proverbial sand if you think that the intent of this lost world is not to drive the church into extermination. That is exactly what the goal is. I have no question in my mind whether we see it in our lifetime, there will be commands and orders given for the extermination of those who are of that way. 
But I want to give you hope today, it will not be destroyed. And that the gospel is still going to work. The gospel is still going to convert souls to the blood of Jesus Christ. And even if they burn every church building in this country and in this world down, the church has not been destroyed. Folks, we're never going to truly, our faith is never going to be truly known to us until it's put to the fire. Faith that has never been tested and faith that has never been tried is not true faith at all. Because persecution is going to reveal to us, do we really believe the word of God? Now again, we saw what happened to Peter. When he got tested, when they finally took Jesus, and then he asked, do you know this man? Jesus vehemently said, no. He said, I don't know this man at all. But yet he's telling Peter, his own confession was, thou art the Christ. These attacks are very real, but they will never prevail. There will always be a church. There will always be a remnant. There will always be a number of people who've been called out who are standing and proclaiming the same doctrine that Christ gave and that his apostles carried on with. Whoever stands behind this sacred desk at some point in time, prayerfully, the church, as it continues to protect and guard against false doctrine, the same message you hear today in 2022 is the same message that our children, if they're still sitting here, hear 30 years from now. And they say it's never changed. It's always been the same. We're upholders of this great truth. We have a great promise from Christ himself that the church will continue. And it will continue and the the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In verse 19, Jesus starts to give other language that causes us a bit of confusion. And I realize there are deep, much deeper theological conversations we can certainly have about these words. My intent this morning is not to go to the very bottom of this, but I want to give you some promises and I want to give you some things I want us to think about as what Jesus was saying here. He says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now again, we think about keys. Keys are the way of access. They are the way to get into things. They're the way we get into doors. In other words, if Jesus Christ is going to build this church and this church is going to continue throughout the gospel age and it's Jesus' church and it's built upon his ways, then there's going to be a a need for that church to function and properly operate. The ways in which things that are acceptable, practical purposes for the keys of this kingdom would be the churches and its need to not only discipline, but the needs to receive or the, the power to receive, refuse, retain, or even possibly and sadly to have to exclude members from the church. One of the saddest things that ever takes place in the life of a church is when discipline of a member comes to a place where you have to remove them from the membership of the church. But sometimes if they will not follow what God's word says, we have an obligation to remove from the church. We rejoice when a member, a new member is added. We rejoice when people join a church. But just as important is there has to be a way to exclude that which is contrary to the church. One of those of those keys, Paul or Peter said to, uh, said to uh, by our Lord, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, Peter, we often recognize as being foremost among the apostles. He's the one that we read most about. We see that how he preached at Pentecost. He preached 3,000 were added into the church. We see in Jerusalem, he shut out Ananias and Sapphira. We see at the house of Cornelius, he admitted the Gentiles. You see, Jesus built the church, but our Lord also committed to the church the power to rule itself. We don't set the doors. We don't make the doors. The keys, that which allows access to those. We don't even make the laws of the church. We simply are to carry out His work. Peter and the apostles became stewards. They became stewards of the Lord Jesus and the church. I love what Matthew Poole said about this. He said, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the whole administration of the gospel, both with reference to the publication of the doctrine of it, the dispensing out, of, out, the, dispensing out the ordinances of it. We read of the key of knowledge, which the scribes and Pharisees took away, Luke eleven fifty two, and the key of government, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. That's Christ. That's Isaiah 22, verses 21 through 22. I will commit thy government into his hand. This is a reference to the sovereign authority over God's kingdom as the promised son of David, which is applied to Christ in Revelation 3, 7. The sense is this, Peter, I will betrust thee and the rest of my apostles with the whole administration of my gospel. You shall lay the foundation of the Christian church, administer all the affairs of it, opening the truths of my gospel to the world, and governing those who shall receive the faith of the gospel. Again, why would God use fallible men to administer and to carry out the truth of his church? Yet that's exactly what he's telling Peter. Again, he's not telling Peter, you're the foundation. Again, there are deeper theological waters we could wade into. But I want you to see this morning that as the church was built and carried out, Paul speaks of this. Our authority does not come from man. Our authority comes from Jesus Christ. I don't speak on behalf of my authority towards you in anything that has to do with God. It's only based on the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we have churches that have gotten this wrong. They will say something like, based on my authority, or they'll make that. Sometimes I think it's inadvertent. Other times I think it's intentional. This is my church. This is, this is the way it's going to be. Nope, this has never been my church. It will never be my church. It won't be your church. It's his church. No church is standing just because someone's here. The authority comes from Christ. The authority to carry out even the exclusion or the refusing of those who might be members. You understand, again, and I, again, I could go down a lot of trails this morning, you understand that the, one of the, the latest attacks of the wicked world is to try to get on the membership roles of churches? You'd think they would do this a little bit more covertly, but they're coming right to the front doors 
and they're, they're attempting to get on the membership rolls. And churches that are unsuspecting, who do not have any process of screening who wants to be a part of the church, are waltzing right in. Say, look, I've been attending this church for two years. I just want to join. Well, first of all, we're going to be sure that you're a real believer, that you are truly in Christ, that you've truly been saved. And we can't, obviously, we can't see the heart. But do you think it's just coming in the door and signing a piece of paper and says, look, I joined? No. There has to be a guarding. And sometimes, folks, this might shock some of you, and hopefully it's actually a blessing to you. We've had to refuse We've had to tell people, you can't join here. The reality is, is if you can get on the membership of churches and you can destroy it from the inside out. Paul often spoke, even when he left Ephesus, he was talking about not just being aware of that which is on the outside, but worried about those and be aware of those who are in the inside who destroy it from the inside out. We shouldn't be shocked that this is a, this is a strategy of the enemy. We don't make the laws of the church. We don't make up the ordinances, which ones to keep, which ones not to keep. We simply carry out what the scriptures tell us to carry out. We carry out God's law. A church would be nothing more than a club if Jesus Christ is not the authority and sanctions everything that should be done in that church. He goes on and he says, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, we've already dealt with this about the claims of the Pope. And if you, again, the claims of the Pope of Rome really starts to get into what this particular verse and how they use it. For example, even if Peter, hypothetically, had been made the head of the church, how would that have gotten us to the place where the current pope is found in Rome? How would we get there? If you say that the pope is a successor of Peter, what's the significance for, still, what's the significance of a pope who's the head of the church? There's not a single true believer in Christ who reads this passage and finds any trace of what the Catholic Church teaches or that the Pope is the head of the church. You cannot get that from this text unless you twist it. Again, Matthew Poole says that the church hath a power in a due order and for just causes to cast persons out of its communion is plain enough from other texts. But that the church hath power to remit, listen carefully, absolve or forgive sins committed against God more than declaring, that is declaring that upon man's repentance and faith God hath remitted, I cannot see founded in this text. The Catholic Church also teaches that they not only have the power to exclude, but they have the power to remit, absolve, or forgive sins. This church, no representative of this church, has the power to forgive your sins. I have no authority to tell you what penance you need to do. 
I have no authority for you to come and sit across the desk and for, repent of your sins to me so that I can absolve you of that or tell you what you must do. Nowhere did Christ say you have the authority to do that. Christ himself said only God can forgive sins. That's it. In such matters, Matthew Henry building upon what Poole said, in such matters their decision was right and confirmed in heaven, but all pretenses of any man either to absolve, forgive, or retain men's sins are blasphemous and absurd. None can forgive sins but God only. And this binding and loosing in the common language of the Jews signified to forbid and to allow or to teach what is lawful or unlawful. That's what the binding and the loosing of this had to do with the Jews' tradition itself and the language that was common in the day to forbid or to allow with regard to the church. He's simply saying, you have the authority to do this. And then interestingly enough, verse 20, Jesus tells Peter, then charge he and his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So after Peter had so freely and fully confessed Christ to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Christ, which was the sense of what the disciples believed, Christ places a blessing upon Peter's confession. He promises the church will not be prevailed against, even though the gates of hell attack it. He gives this charge unto his disciples. And he says, tell no man. They were to remain silent. Now again, part of the scriptures teach us that there was a desire of the people who wanted to act very quickly and wanted to set Jesus up as the king immediately. The command to tell no man must have sounded very strange to the disciples. Imagine being told all these great truths that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that I am giving you the authority to, uh, to, to receive or to remove or to allow in. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. You've confessed that Jesus, that I am Christ, I am the Messiah, but don't go tell anybody. If I was to say that this morning, that would sound extremely strange to you. If I was to say to you, listen, everything we talked about today, I want you just to keep it between us. In essence, that's what he's telling the disciples at this moment. I think by way of application, there's a couple of practical things we could think about. It really was not any of their business to discover, first of all, why he gave that order. You ever notice that sometimes we always read into the scriptures and we want to know, well, why did he say that? When did it become that sometimes when the Lord says this is what you should and shouldn't do, we just don't take his word as the authoritative word and say, don't do that. It's like a child. When you tell that child, don't do that, what's the thing that irritates you the most is why when they ask you why. Now, there are some answers. We do know that one of the things that Jesus was guarding against is that them rashly running up against him and to set him up, try to set him up as a king. But when the, Jesus Christ, who is the authority, has given word and given his commandments and given the instruction, it should be enough for us to simply do as he's instructed. Now, scripturally speaking, we cannot find anywhere in scripture that we are under that same restriction. 
where we're told don't tell anybody. Now, if you can prove my, that thought wrong, please come and talk to me. That we're told not to tell anybody. I can't find anywhere in Scripture that says the church itself now is told don't talk about this. I see the opposite. That actually we are to proclaim it and we are to preach it and we are to continually give the gospel. And not a gospel as an invitation to consider, but a commandment. Repent and believe. That's not an invitation. That's a commandment. It's based upon the promises that Jesus himself said, all that the Father has given to me, I will in no wise cast out. That means when that command to repent and believe goes out, all that the Father has given are going to respond in obedience and they will repent and believe and they will be added unto the church. There's no doubt about it. The people of entire free will say, no, I'd rather leave it up to myself and my own choice. I would suggest to you, if you leave it up to your choice, you will never choose Christ for yourself. So if you do respond, you give glory to God that I responded. Give glory to God that I am one that the Father has given. We are under no restriction to not tell anyone. Therefore, we should tell to all that the Lord is the Savior, the Son of the living God. Or, as Jesus' own words, notice again, I hope you didn't miss this, when we get to a conclusion, oftentimes we miss the last words. They should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. His words to them were, don't tell anyone that I am Jesus the Christ. He even is definitively declaring what Peter's confession was, was accurate and right, but he says, don't tell anybody just yet. Without a doubt, Christ himself is the rock, foundation of the church. Woe unto anyone that attempts to lay hold to any other as being the foundation. It is not just a difference of opinion between Bible believers and the Catholic church about who the foundation of the church is. Now I realize we should not seek to be unkind. But we also should not give any and say, you know what, I can understand your position that the Pope is the foundation of the church. You should not give an inch on that, folks. You say, listen, I, I have Catholic friends. I, I know Catholic. I understand. So do I. But you cannot identify and say, look, we're playing off of the same doctrine here. You're not playing out of the same doctrine. You see, that's, that's the wind of ecumenic ecumenicalism that's coming in to say, listen, we're all just Christians. We're all just in this together. You get to God your way, I'll get to God my way. There is no many, many ways. There's one way to God and that's through Jesus Christ. I am not making up what the Catholic Church believes. Go sit and talk with a priest and they'll tell you these things are so. Well, maybe I rephrase that. Don't go talk to the priest. But they're not talking the same language that you're talking. They say they use the same terms. They don't mean the same thing. Lots of religious organizations and cults use your language. But you know what marks almost all of them? If not all of them, they're not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ building the church. They're built on the foundation of an eccentric leader or someone declared to be a dead God. They're not built upon the foundation of Christ. 
Peter's confession as to this rock was to the doctrine that Jesus Christ was declaring. If Jesus is not the Christ, those that claim ownership to him are not the church. They are simply deceivers and deceived. No doubt the Lord used men like Peter to be human instruments. But they went and declared only the authority and the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Jesus' own words were, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know today that this is, this is a serious subject to deal with. Father, I realize in my frailty and my limitations, even in my own mind and in my own heart, we haven't possibly dealt with everything in this text that we could. But Lord, may our minds and our hearts be reminded about Jesus' words about the church and that he would build and that this is his church and that if we are members of the body of Christ, we are not here by mistake. We're not here by accident. We're here by the sovereign grace and mercy of God. We may only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ as to our attendance in the body. We can only boast in the merits and righteousness of Jesus Christ's precious blood that was shed as to why we're here. And Father, I pray that we that are of the church, those who are saved, that we would be humbly reminded of our standing. Lord, that we would not boast in what we are, what we can do, or that uh, we are somehow the cornerstone of even a local church. It's not built upon man. And Father, if persecution does come against the church at large, it increases and reaches the front doors of this meeting house in which we gather. When our faith is put to the fire, I pray, Lord, that we will stand. We will stand in the refining fire that you send and you allow. But that we would be reminded of the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. May we not lose hope. May we not go back into this world seeking to find a solace and satisfaction there. We will never find it. But may we find our satisfaction in Christ alone. As a church this morning, Lord, we pray that if there is anyone here amongst us today who has yet to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest news we could hear today is that their soul is saved and their eyes are open and their, their heart and their, their ears are made willing to believe and to hear and they are gloriously saved. Father, this Christmas time, Lord, that becomes a time of such busyness and comes a time of just the acquiring of more things, may we not lose sight of the Christ who came and who came to die, to die for the sins of his people. Lord, may we rejoice in the great truths we've heard today. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake, I pray. Amen.